Welcome to Audacious Water, the podcast about how to create a world of water abundance for everyone. I'm John Sabo, director of the Bywater Institute at Tulane University. On today's show, what are the opportunities for companies to collaborate on water stewardship beyond their fence lines? We continue our four-part series on corporate water stewardship with Todd Reeve, CEO of the Bonneville Environmental Foundation. Coming up, I talk with Todd about how corporate water stewardship has evolved over the last 15 years, why collaboration is more transformational than companies just working alone, and why a company would want to cooperate cross-sectionally on stewardship projects. All right, welcome back. Happy today to have Todd Reeve from the Bonneville Environmental Foundation. Been there 21 years has a lot of experience in private sector work, 15 years of it to be exact, working with companies to encourage them to do good work outside of their fence line. And we've talked about kind of that timeline in previous interview of how companies have evolved from working within the four walls to outside of their fence lines. And we're going to talk to Todd about a little bit of those topics today. So Todd, welcome to the, the podcast and welcome to this. Thanks, John. Really appreciate it. Glad to be here. So tell me about those, let's start just with a sort of basic question, like tell me about those 15 years, what those have been like and, and kind of that transition from corporate water stewardship and, corp- and sustainability that might've been more in the license to operate realm into the, you know, moving into this outside of the fence line and doing good work in collaboration with other companies kind of thing. Yeah, it's been an incredible trajectory and, and certainly a long, slow road at times, but it's amazing to look at where concepts of corporate environmental water stewardship were 15 years ago compared to today. And 15 years ago, we were making the case to anyone that would listen to us that it would be corporate best practices to care about, to understand, and to invest in water conditions outside of the fence line for all manner of reasons, right? And it took 10 or 15 years to get to the point that that concept began to resonate. And early, it was always the CFOs that would say, show me how we profit from this. You know, show me what the return on investment is. And it was difficult to show that monetarily. Um, and the big development, of course, is, as you're tracking really well, John, is how much our understanding of water stress has changed in the last seven years, let's say forest fires, groundwater depletion, drought, reservoir levels, contaminated municipal water supplies, toxic algal blooms. You know, it used to be a few companies would say, well, I don't have any facilities in Arizona, so I I don't really need to worry about this. And now we see companies waking up everywhere across North America, internationally, and realizing that there's very real risk associated with water supplies and water issues. And that whether it's brand reputation, whether it's competition in the sector, whether it's social license to operate or social license to grow, they're starting to see it actually, there is a return on investment and it's probably necessary. And so we have seen more and more companies in the past four or five years put resources into developing strategies, developing budgets to begin participating in this outside of the fence line work, what I call environmental water stewardship. That's cool. So tell me about, like, I know some of the work that you've been involved with in the in Apalachicola and the ACF and, and of course, California and, and other places. Tell me a little bit about why it's important to have a handful or more of companies collaborating on a, on a goal rather than just one big giant. Yeah. You know, as, as we see in conservation work generally and in philanthropy, 
There's transactional work where you chip away, you know, one project at a time on tiny bits of a big issue. And there's transformational work where collectively um, you organize, you leverage partners, you leverage funding streams, you leverage influence to achieve bigger and better outcomes. And when we look at these water issues, first and foremost, they're complex. It's going to take a long time to fix them. They are not well suited to transactional investments, right? If you chip away on 100 feet of a stream over here and you chip away on a you know irrigation pipeline over there, it pretty much adds up to zero. And so really the effort to bring together many companies, build their awareness and understanding, find the intersection of where their interests reside in a place around a certain set of water issues, there's unbelievable potential there to leverage that participation from multiple companies. And one of the biggest elements, of course, is the influence of these brands, right? These are Fortune 50, Fortune 100 companies. They ha- really haven't been at the table, so to speak, in terms of voicing concerns around water issues, water policies, water decisions. And so when a huge brand, let's say one that employs tens of thousands of people in your state, steps up and comes to the table and says, hey, I've got real concerns about this or that issue, I'm keeping my eye on state policy, it's a really big deal. And so bringing together companies that are able to do that, companies that are able to invest in catalytic projects, programs, solutions, that's really starts to create that change as opposed to, you know, let's say 15 years ago, maybe there were one or two probably beverage company players that were in the sector. And it was somewhat of a novelty, certainly a nice to have, but to move that into a transformational movement among private sector companies, that's the opportunity that's in front of us. It's going to take work to pull that off, but that's where we have real potential for impact. Cool. That leads nicely into the next question, which is, sorry, you brought up food and beverage and we've had you know some input from food and beverage on kind of the inside and four walls perspective. If I'm Pepsi or Coke, why do I want to collaborate with an Intel or a Dow or um, Levi Strauss or, you know, why cross-sectoral? Yeah, that's, that's a great one. And we're seeing a lot of that occur right now. You know, one of the reasons is some of those beverage players were early in the game, right? They were investing. They probably realized that many of their investments were only creating incremental benefits, right? Small, perhaps standalone projects. So they were one of the early industries to understand the complexity of these water issues and to realize that the solutions were going to would require collective impact, bigger, better solutions and partnerships. So I think that's one reason they bring a sophistication to this space that others probably won't understand for a decade or more. This was often built into their thinking as well of can we be a catalyst as a company? Can we develop and showcase the multiple benefits of these projects? So maybe it isn't just seen as a water security project. It's a community project. It's serving, you know, it has underserved community benefits. Maybe it has a carbon benefit, fish and wildlife benefit, economic benefits. So I think they did a lot of the kind of yeoman's work to try and develop these projects and showcase the diversity of benefits that are allowing other companies to come into that space now. So I think there's benefit to them as leaders. You know, they can engage other parties and say, hey, we were a part of galvanizing this movement and we're continuing to lead it. And then they have priorities. If you mentioned the Apalachicola Flint system, other water stress systems, there's a real benefit to when they can bring other parties in and have more influence on a funding level or a policy level, just in terms of the water security outcomes or the social license to operate that they may, may be able to obtain in those places that are important to them. Oh, that's neat. So just kind of recap, 
from the food and beverage perspective, especially from a, a beverage company's perspective, being a leader is important and being able to be out in front and, and to catalyze other companies to participate is a value add for the effort. What about if you're, if you're on the trailing end of that? How do you create the value proposition for that? And by trailing end, do you mean you're a newcomer to the space? Yeah, you've exactly. been in the game for a long time. And maybe you're not Fortune 100. Maybe mm-hmm. you don't have a water person on your team. Yeah. How do you how do you engage? Yeah. So there are new new pathways opening up for that. And certainly our work with company, you know, we work with dozens of companies, big and small, to help understand precisely what they want to accomplish and where they want to accomplish it and help show them what's been done, what needs to be done, if, how, where they might be able to engage. Other NGOs, you know, develop projects, offer similar programs. But what's really unique right now are some of these collaborations that are formalizing in places like California and Texas, or even globally around water stress locations that companies share. A couple of examples, the California Water Action Collaborative in in the state of California, bringing companies together to work collectively on some of these priority issues and priority areas. There's a similar one developing right now, the Texas Water Action Collaborative. There's the Water Resilience Coalition. So what we're seeing is there are leaders, there are midpoint players, and there are folks that are new to this. Some of this work with NGOs or around these collaboratives is allowing for companies to come in quickly, understand what the opportunities are, and in some cases, be able to ride you know, on the, on the tail of these other leaders, right? And, and a lot of these new companies will really appreciate and they'll acknowledge, wow, this really iconic beverage company has been in the game for a long time. They know what they're doing. If we have a chance to get in league with them, we know we're moving in the right direction. So those forums have really offered that collaborative opportunity to allow newcomers to learn, build awareness, process, and be able to initiate work in this space much, much faster than they would have been able to on their own. That's fantastic. So let me me ask you a question about the about collaboration among companies and, and how it pushes the needle. So you know, I like I like to think of it as as bundling resources, but I think the way that you introduced it, at least in our introductory in our pregame, was was that leveraging the brand name actually is is one of the the biggest value adds. So to talk about bundling, you know, there, there's some non-additive stuff that happens when more than one company is participating. What is that? Yeah. You know, first of all, it's always easier said than done, right? We all say we all want to work together and we all want to have collective impact. Many, many reasons that is difficult to do. But I think in particular around water issues, and we just had a really significant announcement yesterday around uh, a Colorado River Indian Tribes project that conserved 150,000 acre feet of water for Lake Mead. And we brought in, I think, 16 companies to collectively invest millions of dollars in that project. In my view, it's it's a first of a kind, uh, multi-sector collaborative funding effort, basically as a drought response project. And I think that when policymakers, when agencies, when tribal water partners hear that these Fortune 500 names, right, Intel, Microsoft, Google, Procter & Gamble, Cox, those kind of entities are stepping up. They're participating, they're investing, they're building awareness. It really jumpstarts this work. And so new solutions, new projects, new ideas start to develop. And entities start to realize if these major corporate players are paying attention, this is incredibly important, right? And we've got yeah. to keep moving this. 
And so a, a big element of that, especially where water supply is at risk, is these companies are saying, we also need predictable water supply. We want to grow higher, develop here. We want to support our stakeholders, our communities. But if we don't have a pathway to predictable water supply, it's not going to work for us. So to me, this kind of messaging, when these companies come together and they participate in this kind of a project together, it sends kind of lightning signals to agencies, policymakers, players, like this is critical and we got to figure it out and we need right. to do more. So in my experience, it's been one of the biggest factors as we'll take some of these companies to meet with legislators and talk about what they're doing in the water space. And those legislators never forget about it. And they say, wow, I've got these big employers, sophisticated global companies paying attention to this river basin in my state because they're worried about what we're doing. I think it's a really big deal in some ways can change the game of this water policy dialogue where very, very few stakeholders, right, have crafted and maintained water water policy over the last century. So getting these businesses in the game, I think, is a positive. Well, I think you just touched on something that's that's super important, and you mentioned it before, which was, in this case, you mentioned it as jobs. Previously, you you mentioned it as communities. I think, you know, as companies start to see their watershed as an area where they're going to grow talent in the future, then they they invest in that future of talent because it's key to the sustainability of the business, right? And what what I like to believe, and I hope is true, is you look at how competitive it is, right, to attract and retain talent. And you've got this talent pool that now is able to look at job opportunities all over the country. And so these these cities have to be very, very competitive. And if you've got dry streams and poor water quality and your water supplies in question, people aren't going to elect to move there and work there. So we continue to make the case that these companies have to invest in this work. They have to be sure that the states are, in effect, taking care of these water systems or ultimately they won't be able to attract and retain the talent that they need to be competitive. So I do absolutely believe those elements are are integrated. Fantastic, cool. Coming up, I ask Todd about the role of science in corporate water stewardship collaborations. And we talk about some exciting opportunities for companies to work with American Indian tribes, as well as with urban partners. So let's turn a little bit and pivot with the Texas Water Action Collaborative and Quack in mind. What's the role of science in delivering outcomes in those kinds of collaboratives? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, many of these collaboratives are focused on science-based outcomes, on wanting to know and have certainty that scientific processes and methods have been used to identify certain projects. So I think it's very important. Many of the nonprofits or the tribes that lead this type of work have significant scientific analyses, processes, and tools that they're using to identify the right place and the right project for the right benefits and using that to shape the kind of projects that they develop. But I will say it's interesting. The companies that are participating in this work typically are relying on those NGOs or those agencies or those tribes to make those evaluations, right, and assess the scientific prioritization or work that they're proposing. I think that science and data and evaluation in this work is relatively in its infancy, right, as we look at a whole suite of possible projects across a landscape. And increasingly, we want to know, companies want to know, what's the most important thing we can do? That's very difficult to answer. A lot of entities have a lot of different answers that are supported on some level by science. 
But I think as we improve data, as we improve our analytics, as we bring new scientific tools, that will be critically important to grow and sustain this corporate interest. Because if the corporate interest just is seen as a nice to have, and hey, we wrote some checks to feel good about this, this isn't going to last very long. It won't be durable. But if we can show that indeed these investments, this participation from the private sector is producing real tangible outcomes that address these water security issues, that's where we can grow and build the power of this work with the private sector. That makes a lot of sense. So just to, to play that back, you there's some strategy that's needed. And that strategy has traditionally come from NGOs and tribes and other um, non-private sector partners. Exactly. University players, of course, have been instrumental in that nexus with tribes and agencies and, and NGOs. But I think in the water space, it's critical and it's probably a missing element right now of what are our expectations for who is doing the analytics and the scientific processing to help kick down what the priorities are, what the places are where we can invest. And if we went out in the landscape today, we presumably would hear a lot of different priorities that are supported by a lot of different scientific or science evaluations. And so especially when these conditions become more severe with drought and heat and fire, it's going to be critical that we're doing the right things in the right places. And so I do think we need researchers, scientists, universities, agencies, NGOs, tribes working together on some level to be able to direct this work where it can have the highest impact. Cool. You touched on this before, but I was going to ask you about just to tell us about an exciting new project, and maybe you can expand a little bit on the one that you're talking about with the Colorado River. Sure. Yep. Lots of exciting new projects. A, a really important piece of the puzzle is how important equity is to a lot of these companies, to my organization, to other organizations, and especially looking at opportunities partnering with tribes. Tribes often are senior water rights holders. It's typical that their water infrastructure is incredibly outdated and money that they've been promised for a century hasn't shown up. And so there is unbelievable potential to collaborate with tribes and help them achieve water efficiency, water conservation priorities, while also alleviating strain on some of our water supply systems. If and as tribes can use water more efficiently, can expand their economic productivity. In some cases, they have opportunities to free up water that can be leased to other non-tribal water users. So we've been working with a handful of tribes to understand from them what their priorities are in terms of irrigation infrastructure improvement and collaborate with companies to help funnel money in to support that work. And the the one example I referenced a moment ago was with the Colorado River Indian tribes. It was a scenario where we had philanthropic partners like Walton Family Foundation stepping up and offering a one-to-one match for any corporate dollars that would come in. Which allow, and the state of Arizona making a very significant commitment. But a, a large gap, a large funding gap existed to be able to compensate Colorado River tribes for this immense conservation effort of 150,000 acre feet to ultimately halt the decline of those reservoir levels at Lake Mead. So that project has been the most successful corporate project of any that I'm aware of with millions of dollars from philanthropy, from corporates, from state agencies, all collectively going toward this water security drought mitigation project. For us, that really opened our eyes to how we need to develop projects with partners that have some durability and that ultimately can work for dozens of companies to participate in at a higher impact level. And so we're now in dialogue with a suite of, of tribes in the desert Southwest, looking at similar projects, some very large scale, some smaller scale, 
and thinking about the equity, the positive equity economic development side of it, thinking about the water security side, thinking about the water for nature side, and thinking about ultimately freeing up additional water for places like Las Vegas and, and central Arizona. So that is very exciting to me right now, that sort of suite of projects. But we also are working on some of the first kind of urban water efficiency projects with the Pacific Institute and many companies in Southern California looking at leak detection as a cost-effective way to identify leaks and get business or um, building owners to repair those leaks and ultimately obtain a financial benefit. And frankly, you know, a suite of other projects across the country that are really opening the doors for companies to invest in new ways, in things that will create, stretch the benefit of every drop of water for communities, for nature, and for business. Those are cool projects. Can you tell us a bit about the players, the corporate players in the, in the Colorado River Indian Tribes project? Sure. It's a, it's a long list and I, I wish I would have had it in front of me, but you've got a number of tech companies, Intel, Microsoft, Google, you've got Procter & Gamble, Target, Cox, Reformation, a fashion company, Coca-Cola, Swire Coca-Cola, I'm probably, unfortunately, uh, Ecolab, I'm probably leaving a few out. But what's really important to note is a lot of different sectors, right? Different companies doing things for different reasons. That's very important. That's not just the beverage industry 10 years ago doing this type of work. You also have these companies recognizing how integrated these water systems are in the Southwest, right? With water from the lower Colorado flowing into Los Angeles, San Diego, Phoenix, Tucson, Las Las Vegas. A lot of these bigger players have operations in all of those locations. And so that's a really significant difference from a lot of work that occurred previously, where you may have a single project in a single state or a single watershed. They're seeing how these drops are connected to their businesses in all of these different locations. And then they're, they're wanting to use a project like this in different ways. For some, the equity component and the, the tribal connection is critically important and it's a, it's a central part of their strategy. For others, they're literally looking to reduce water risk in the lower Colorado River Basin. For others, they really want to be a catalyst and a collaborator and they're eager to be pulling together these companies and participating with more to generate you know, bigger and better outcomes. So for me, it's been a... a fabulous learning curve to see all the different reasons that these companies participate in a project like that. It's interesting because I do a lot of work in transboundary water and it reminds me a little bit of sort of matchmaking across borders, but it's across company boundaries and and objectives and things. That's really, really exciting. Congratulations on that project. Appreciate that. Let's, um, speaking of transboundary, just wanted to get your thoughts on international things. You guys are mostly nationally focused, I think. Tell me if you have international in your sites and what that would look like in terms of building these partnerships. Yeah, the United States is probably where we have 160 or more projects. Uh, Increasingly working in Canada, probably have 10 or so projects in Canada, have a few in Mexico. And then the last couple of years have started doing some work in Europe and a little bit in South America. So we need to be very, very careful as we expand. We're a small nonprofit organization. We don't have unlimited capacity or relationships in these places. So we are carefully expanding where there's often multiple corporations interested in a single geography and or where we have some connections or we have some knowledge of those areas. So what we're seeing, and this is a fascinating piece of the puzzle, many of these companies may have headquarters in the United States 
operationally, operations abroad, often in Asia, are where they use the majority of their water, right? And so as this work develops and as hopefully they're successful in North America and they do good work and generate positive benefits and return on investment for the company, they're setting their sights on these international locations. And so we've supported some companies working in India and Pakistan. And so we're increasingly knowledgeable about the challenges, Brazil as well. And it's a different landscape and a different set of challenges for sure, right? And just, you know, a couple of things we're, we're finding, you know, one in Europe, government funding is, is quite reliable and trusted and corporate funding is not. Whereas in, in the United States, especially in the West, government funding is not trusted and corporate funding is. And so we have a lot of entities in Europe saying, you know, what do they want out of it? You know, what, what's this game really about as we're exploring project opportunities and needing to build trust with partners on the ground and that sort of thing. As we expand into Asia, a whole new suite of challenges, as you know, John, yeah. but the infrastructure to develop these projects, the science behind the project, the ability to sustain impacts over the long time, all those are, are immense challenges. And so we and many of these corporate partners are approaching the work in slightly different ways in these geographies. One example I'm hearing a lot about lately, I think, is the water fund in, in Rio that's been there for a long time. It has a lot of trust, credibility, demonstrated outcomes. A vehicle like that may be really fantastic for companies to participate in, right? It's established those relationships. Other places, say in China, where we see corporate need and interest to engage in water work, there's nothing like that. And so it's really square one from how would a company begin participating in this type of work. And, and I don't know what the answer is, right? There are all manners of, of challenges out there. But I think supporting NGOs that are beginning to do the scientific assessments, beginning to do the outreach, develop relationships, beginning to pull together the framework of a watershed plan and actions is probably where that work has to begin. And I think that's tough for companies, right? There's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of ambiguity if that's where you're starting. So I do think we have challenges as we transition from, say, the United States, where there's a lot of organizations and social infrastructure to develop and support these projects to places where that isn't the case. We're trying to be active and creative and helping solve some of those challenges, but I think they're significant. And so I don't think this can be done everywhere right now. It's a great answer. Thanks for that perspective. And um, I think that was my last question. Thanks for the interview. Of course. That's it for this episode of Audacious Water. If you like the show, please rate or review us and tell your colleagues and friends. For more information about Audacious Water, visit our website at audaciouswater.org backslash podcast. Until next time, I'm John Sable.